Yes. Well, basically just coming back from retreat, the kind of theme that you gave me to work on on the retreat was um, sati and sukha. And on, on the subject of sati, uh, I really tried the whole week in everything that I was doing to be very, very just continuously aware of what I was doing, drinking tea, stretching, breathing, sitting, walking. Um, and it was probably the, the most mindful I've ever been for a kind of stretch of time. But there, there were moments in that where I would find myself recoiling from it and it, I realized it's like it, it's like the present moment. If you're really, really, really in the present moment, it is like this eternity. It is just like this this kind of ongoing, deep, wide, present eternity. Wow. And a big, big right now. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and there's something in us that is that recoils, that is scared of it, want to wants to play in the kind of uh in the twists and turns of the past and the future rather than really be here now and it really is a practice to 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 be here now um so that's the sati end the sukha end was really interesting uh lots of sukha lots of joy lots of just like the joy of like hearing birds the joy of walking on the grass in bare feet, I was the whole week in bare foot. I'll, I'll talk to you about that in, in uh, detail as well. That was great. <laughs> um, the, yeah, just like the joy of sitting, the joy of lying down, the joy of waking up, the joy of hearing birds sing, the joy of, you know, that it was a lot of it was really very pronounced, but I was also aware of kind of very subtle levels of background dukkha <laughs> that we are ordinarily and it's almost like that's all, almost like what we're running away from in our fear of the present moment like we're, we're scared that somehow the present moment might be unsatisfactory so instead let's jump into something else or the, do you know what I mean I don't, like but this background level of dukkha it's like in ordinary life one is so busy that you don't notice like a kind of really subtle tint in your worldview that is defined with a kind of self-criticism or a kind of like subtle aversion or a general sense of kind of like slight annoyance or like some you know quite subtle background dukkha when you're on retreat and it's a you know solo retreat it's just you you yourself and you <laughs> um and who <laughs> <laughs> and you um you notice that you're suddenly like oh like you just like oh for the last like hour i've been in this like subtly self-critical like this very subtle lens has kind of been coloring experience mm -hmm. and i think it is ordinarily a level of background dukkha that is we take as a given mm -hmm. um, and you only notice it when it's gone and you're suddenly like, oh, I'm in a good mood now because that background duke has, you know, goes for a bit. Um, mm -hmm. so you're going all the buttons, you're right? You're pressing all the buttons. <laughs> the first thing that you're mentioning is the seclusion now you're you're not really secluded uh you're because you're in a pastoral setting 
Yeah. And so you're not secluded from the pastoral setting, but you're secluded from all of the voices that come to you throughout your day. Yes. You're secluded from the business of the day. Yeah. That all you've got left is the pastoral setting. And that you've also been training yourself to be in the present moment, to be in that, pre that pastoral state. And yet now you're beginning to say, wait a minute, there's still this... going on in there that we don't even really know about. Yeah. Until we actually get in that state of seclusion. Yeah. We have to really get away from the noise because it's almost like a surface level noise or the, uh, let us say the worries of the day. Mm -hmm. But when you've gotten past the worries of the day, now you're down to the worries of the age. Yeah. It's like the deeply conditioned worries, right? The ones which are quite deep. In, ingrained right into yeah. the um, instincts. Yeah. Instinctual, that they're down there. But the instincts was only, let us say, in a way, the, the blank chalkboard. And that we can erase some of the stuff that was on that chalkboard. We don't have to leave it up there simply because that was the first stuff written mm. on that chalkboard. Mm. That's an important quality. That we may be the chalkboard, but we're not the writing on the chalkboard. Mm. So we can start then with the sense of becoming unified and whole and friendly with our instincts. Mm. While we're throwing out all of the learned behavior that would be associated with Silabata Paramasa, or in the sense of um, uh, Eric Byrne and Sigmund Freud of throwing out that parent ego state that we built up. Yeah. That we, in fact, um, much of our behavior is learned, and as children, we learned it from adults, and the most likely person we learned it from was a parent. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's, it's labeled that way, because parents are the ones who not only take care of a child, but in an adult state, that parent in his head still takes care of him only by setting, by doing so uh, with a set of rules that are 40 years old and not well remembered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the ferocity of the engagement kind of increases. Yeah. And so yeah. we begin, we wind up being hard on ourselves. We tell ourselves yeah. things, and then we feel bad about what we're telling ourselves. You're right. The ferocity of the engagement is interesting. It's like when we are younger adults, like when we're in our early 20s, we're further away from that parent ego state, aren't we? Mm -hmm. It's part of, part of the kind of development as you push, push, push against it. And then I, like, you kind of somehow drift back into it, or maybe it's becoming a parent as well contributes to that. If you would think of it this way, up until the age of about 16 to 20, something in that range, up until that time is the, in, uh, let us say, the conception phase. Yeah. And then the um, late teens and early 20s and maybe into the 30s, uh, into the 30s, yeah, would then be 
um, the incubation or the pregnancy stage mm-hmm. for that parent ego state so that when we wake up as an adult in, in older life, there it is again. We have become the parent. Yeah. Even, even if um, we didn't like the guy. Yeah. And, and that's something that's really surprising to a lot of guys. They don't even know this until they get into, parent, into therapy. And they wind up recognizing that they're behaving exactly like their dad did behave when they were kids and didn't like him doing it that way. And yeah. now he's doing it that way. <laughs> That's the development of that parent ego state. In fact, telling you this story may help you to understand that because for some reason, the triggers are there. If we don't have children around, we don't trigger into that parent ego state quite so easily. Mm-hmm. But once there are kids around, boy, do we become parent. Yes. Yeah, as we've discussed. Um, but yeah. I'm learning not to be kiddies. I'll be your daddy, but I'm not going to be your parent. Yeah. Um, on the retreat, it seemed like being aware of that background and see and also like a, a very big theme of the week was the seven factors of awakening yes you mentioned that that's a good topic for discussion isn't it yeah um yeah it it, it wasn't like a kind of intentional theme i didn't go into it thinking i'm going to really think about focus on the seven factors of awakening but it it really emerged but i, I suppose in relation to that um to seeing that kind of those those background that writing on the chalkboard as he said in terms of like ultimately freeing ourselves from it we first have to see it right like that's the kind of mindfulness in the seven facts of awakening then we need to kind of like investigate it ah like when does it come about how does it come about how does it feel like is it present right now no it's not present right now that's nice right like we kind of go through that investigative process that investigation takes on a kind of life force and energy and, you know, momentum. Mm-hmm. Eventually it becomes joyful and, and we, we go through that transformation process as we move through the seven factors of awakening. As it becomes easy. As it becomes easy, yeah. As it becomes easy, it becomes quite a joy. Yes. In the beginning, right effort uh, is needed for that investigation. Yeah. Because we're not used to doing it. Also, um, the coming out of the dukkha, once we've recognized it, and so we do the investigation, but oftentimes our investigation is not good enough or strong enough or powerful enough mm-hmm. for us to actually see this as dukkha. Once we do see it as dukkha, out it goes. We get caught up in the investigation and we don't move beyond it. Like We go, oh, this is dukkha. Oh, oh this feels bad. Oh dear, I don't like this. This reminds me of this other time I felt bad. <laughs> and we don't move. Ah, right, and then we get stuck there at that yeah. place. Exactly. In that case, it wouldn't be a factor of enlightenment. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, but yeah, that, that movement of the, the whole seven factors from mindfulness to letting go. There was a moment, I didn't mention this in my... Um, sorry, already appallingly long email that I wrote you last night when I got back. But um, 
there was, there was a moment uh, about halfway through the week where it suddenly just occurred to me, like the whole of Anapanasati is that is mindfulness to letting go, mindfulness to equanimity. And I basically take equanimity to be like synonymous like with letting go, like means it's sort of like the same. Um, I use the, the quality of sea legs. If you understand equanimity yeah. as sea legs, then you can understand that all the, our life is we have been clinging to the deck because it was unstable. Yeah. But if we get developed sea legs, then we can just hop up and down like the ship hop up and down. We can still keep the face uh, relatively calm. Yes. And so we can handle it. So uh, when people don't understand equanimity, we have to understand that it's something that's happening in turmoil that's not in equanimity. Yeah. Okay. And so the easiest way for me to describe it is sea legs. Sea legs, right. So it, what, it just, I had this moment where it just came me that the, the whole of Anapanasati, each tetrad and the whole process altogether is that movement from mindfulness to a to a to a equanimous like letting go so like with the first tetrad it's like investigating or it's being mindful of the breathing and the body kind of investigating it and eventually like calming it so you're sort of like letting go of the tension you're you're allowing it to kind of move into equanimity and it seems like you kind of do the same thing with the vedana you do the same thing with the cheetah and you do the the kind of same thing in the Dharma person are at the end and it I burst out laughing I was just like oh the whole thing is just these seven factors of awakening it's this yeah. and it got in this in that moment it had this real strong thing where it was like each breath was moving through the the whole cycle and it felt like With every breath the whole show exactly yeah. exactly and then I thought, then it got interesting because then I was like, oh, that's how I'll practice now with each each breath will just be the whole show. I won't bother with first tetrad this, second tetrad this, third tetrad this. Mm -hmm. And then I tried that, but then it was like it, um, it, it kind of worked sometimes and other times didn't work. Right. Other times I, I realized that actually that structure is, and, and really lingering over the different elements of the structure is really helpful in facilitating a kind of movement through it. but it was amazing for this little bit i like i kind of laughed at the kind of realization and then it was like each breath was just like moving like through each through the kind of seven factors just like on each breath and then for the next couple of days that was as i was walking so i went for like long walks every afternoon it would i just suddenly stop and kind of move through those seven facts of awakening, you know, in regard to looking at something or a thought or a sensation or the breath or the body. And it just seemed like it was getting deeper and deeper ingrained, yeah, especially the second half. Because as I said in the email, the first half of the seven factors going from mindfulness to PT, I feel like I'd become very familiar with over the last kind of mm -hmm. nine months, year of practice. And then the second half never really made sense and it was like PT seemed to be like the kind of pinnacle of my meditative like almost like I couldn't really move beyond it um and then over this last week I've I've I feel like I've made a lot of progress in realizing that P PT is not the peak of the mountain no but the pity is and by the way 
we have to understand the language itself with the Pali that the word pity is related to sukha. And so the word pity there includes the sukha. Yes. It's not separate because yes. the last three stages you can think of is um, uh, relaxation, unification of mind, mm -hmm. and the sea legs, the letting go, or the equanimity, or, or allowing things to be a ruckus without it causing a ruckus. Yeah. Uh, so those last three things actually will come and arise naturally out of the first four. Yes. The, well, the effort of the skills are those things. And there's another point that's quite amusing, I find. And that is the whole concept of relaxation, mm -hmm. which is often translated as tranquility. And now you're really highfalutin. We've got to get out of highfalutin and right into the reality of the situation. Everybody knows how to sit down and relax. Mm -hmm. And that's all we need to do is just sit down and relax, just relax. Okay, so by relaxation, that takes no skill. Everybody knows how to do it. If you talk about it, tranquility, then it sounds so highfalutin and so much work involved to get to tranquility. Mm -hmm. But another way of looking at tranquility is, is that it's shot out of a tranquilizer gun. <laughs> And that when the animal is shot and tranquilized, he is comatose. I think that's how most, most people think of tranquility in 21st century. Right. Certainly America is something that can be given by <laughs> some uh, pharmaceutical company. I know. Okay. So now, and right, tranquilizers, exactly. Pills. Let's not get out of that, or let's get out of that and into the actual understanding is we're talking about relaxed. Once we have that joy and that investigation and that uh, energy and mm -hmm. that mindfulness dedication, we come to that state of being relaxed. Well, it, it, as the PT transitions into Sukha, right, as the, as, as the, so it starts off in, in sort of my, meditative experience of the last year it's like when the pt comes the pt is like up here. and the suka is kind of here making it pleasant in the background but like the ratio is like that uh, um yeah this i and i realized that like actually i've been very grabby with the pt i haven't really let it settle fully into a, a really like absorbing sukha and I think as I in the last years I've kind of experimented with trying to kind of shift from first jhana um into second jhana and realize that like the approach that works with the pt which is like just kind of riding it in waves you need a slightly different approach with the sukha like you need to let the sukha settle and settle mm -hmm and settle and I realized like, I, I essentially was too grabby in my kind of like mental relation to these factors in my meditation so it wasn't settling it Isn't wasn't that exactly and also that grabby quality already has it built in that it's not really satisfactory yet yes yeah. there's still something else that is needed yeah and by by doing that way, 
um, we're saying that it's not good enough. We're in a state of wanting, and uh, but if we can catch that, if we can catch it, say no, this is good enough. This really is nice right now. It's good. We yeah. don't. Have, all right. So we have to be on on guard for that because there's always been that part of us that is complaining. This isn't good enough. Yeah. Even at that level, we can. Well, we can literally rain on our own parade. But once again, that's one of those real background tendencies that is like almost like the water we swim in. We don't notice it. And I, I feel like for me, that that kind of like grabbing onto something good, you know, clinging to it, craving it and yeah, saying, well, it's not this isn't good enough now. So I need this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I feel like that's a very inbuilt um tendency for me which i only really saw how that was applying to the meditation practice over the last week because that got relaxed so much with such uh and produced a real uh shift in the meditation suddenly you're able to kind of like really let the the PT and the sukha change their ratios. And it's a shift from like active to passive. Like you let, it's not so much like you riding the sukha. It is like the sukha like seeping, seeping, seeping into your complete experience. Yes, 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 yes. Good, good analogy. Um, and it really does create that successful attitude. Mm. The attitude, again, is it's not good enough. Then we're, we've changed our attitude. But if we can say, yes, this is good enough, mm. then it, that's what makes it actually easier to do. Yeah. It's a less personal success, though. It's, not, it's, like not, it's no longer kind of I'm being successful at this. It's just like it's happening. It's happening. It's not, it's no, it, that, that shift from the kind of like active, you're making stuff happen to the passive, you're relaxing into the experience, you are letting it unfold, takes a lot of the doer out of it, right? You stop exactly. doing it, it, it just does. <laughs> Mentioning the sale of uh, the, uh, uh, the postman earlier uh, in another call, what you just said reminds me of that in the sense of, uh the mail call or that the postman has arrived he's delivering a package we didn't have to go out and do anything all we had to do was just receive the gift yeah we had to be here now (laughs) we had to be in in the house (laughs) there is so much happening all around us all the time the postman is constantly arriving giving bearing gifts yeah and we don't like it too much we're too busy not liking the last several gifts that we got a long time ago or something but this present moment is being open to it or not even taking an object at all just letting everything be around Mm -hmm. uh uh leads into that now Here's some other things about the seven factors of enlightenment that have more a little bit to do with history, if you want. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, is that upon uh, the sickness, uh, when a monk would get really sick, 
or upon their deathbed that uh, they would request one of their friends to recite or to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment, to talk about it. Also, this was what happened, I think, for the Buddha. He did that with those. It was one time he was sick, and I think even at the time of his own death, they recited the seven factors of enlightenment. It's almost, um, let us say, at the level of the, uh, not a funeral dirge, mm. but a funeral celebration. Mm. Uh, and um, there is also um, the story of the seven-headed snake, the Naga, mm -hmm. that is on some statues. In fact, in Thailand, they have uh, a different statue for every day of the week as part of the, um, the magic of um, uh, traditional Buddhism here in Thailand. And one day is the reclining Buddha. Uh, and I, I'm sure that Saturday is the, the one with the Naga. Okay. okay. Yeah. For some reason or another, my, uh, my day is Saturday. But I think it's Monday is the reclining Buddha, <clears throat> and that would be the one I would prefer. But I'll take Naga as a second. <laughs> yeah. So what you have is the statue of the Buddha, but he's sitting atop the coils of a huge snake. Yeah. And then the snake's head comes out over and like the hood of a uh, cobra, except yeah. that this hood uh, works out into seven heads. Okay. These, this seven-headed snake is uh, referenced as a god, but it is in fact the seven factors of enlightenment. It is not, it's actually let us say, a metaphorical rather than magical way of mm -hmm. speaking of the seven factors of enlightenment that the Buddha said that, that they were his protection mm -hmm. in that time of danger. Mm -hmm. That he was protected by the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, what do we mean? It doesn't mean that he was thinking about them, but that, in fact, he did have unremitting mindfulness. Mm -hmm. He did have unremitting investigation which gives an unremitting energy or a wakefulness to be awake and up and alert, uh, and also giving rise to great joy through the success that I can, in fact, maintain this vigil. And so that's what then brings about, the. now that we have that, now can come the relaxation. Mm. Now that we've got it all under control, we can relax, and settle down and unify the mind. Yeah. What's interesting is that that's really when the samadhi, the unification of the mind takes place. Whereas I, I had kind of, I didn't really understand that. For me, in my practice, that the most samadhi, the most unification tended to be around the PT. Like that was right. the apex. And actually, over the last week, I've really seen it's like, no, no, no. It's actually <laughs> when you let it settle and... When there's nowhere to go and nothing to do, and you let it, and you're not, you no longer being in that grabby, clingy frame of mind trying to make things happen, mm -hmm. and it just gets deeper and stiller and stiller and stiller. That is when th that unification can really start to work on the mind and on the book. So, 
so you can see why that statue now is so important with this symbology, even though that it personifies the seven factors of enlightenment. Actually, the seven factors of enlightenment is our protection. Hmm. It's, it also it struck me that they, it's like petite, it's like in Petitia Samupada, but if there's mindfulness at the point of contact, then this is what arises. So it's like instead of you know the the craving and the the, the clinging and the pain and the birth and the suffering and the death and, and that whole mass yeah. of misery, it's like and the alternative route. It's like no mindfulness at point of contact. Welcome to birth, death, misery, etc. <laughs> mindfulness at point of contact. Go left towards the seven factors of awakening. <laughs> exactly so. Exactly, and it's important to note that that contact is not kind of a passive contact, but is a driver. Mm. It's, it's almost like the way that the baseball bat contacts the ball at the, at the, uh, uh, at the batter's box. It struck. Why they use the word um, contact, I'm not sure, but we do have the quality of the old airplanes in World War II that they would call the word contact and then he would throw the electric while the guy pulled the, the thing down to get the thing fired up. Mm. Okay, that's what we really are talking about with contact. It's a way of saying it is not a nudge or a push. It is a shove. And that shove then is part, if we do it wisely, can be the very energy that we needed anyway. That's, that's going to be the source of the energy, the very source of the energy that would have gone wrong, causing trouble if we weren't wise. Mm. So there is already energy there. There it is. If we capitalize on it, and so the, mind, uh, the, um, uh, the factor of enlightenment that is referred to as energy is no longer effortful because our mindfulness and our investigation are already unremitted. They keep coming back and coming back and coming back. So now what effort there is, is no longer effort. It's the energy from the contact. Mm. And so as wisdom arises, that's where the joy arises. Because why? Because we can control how we feel. And I feel good. <laughs> and I knew I would now. <laughs> As the James Brown meditation. Yeah. <laughs> and so I feel good, like I knew I would. That's when the pity arises. Mm -hmm. But with that also comes a deeper satisfaction that you see James Brown gets his best, not while he's on stage, but after the show is over and he's sitting in his um, chair there in front of his makeup stand and go, <sighs> and so that's something that we don't have to wait on the way that he does. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can feel good right now and then relax right now. Mm -hmm. There and is something like a, that can be like a little loop, right, within, the, within that kind of movement. Yes. And this is also then step four of Anapanasati. A lot of people think, oh, step one, step two, step three, step four. No, no. Step four of Anapanasati is the result of 
the Vedana that we were doing derives that pity. You're not going to get relaxation until you have that. Uh, you're, you're not going to have that satisfaction of getting a joke until after you bust out laughing. The bust out laughing, that's the pity. And then the got it, that's, that's the, uh, the relaxation. Why? Mm. Because everybody who didn't get the joke, they're still, what's going on? What? what? <laughs> well, it, the PT, it kind of like, it, it like magnifies the energy, right? It, it kind of amplifies it. And it also offers a contrast because the, although the PT is joyful, it also contains within it elements which are so energized that they are pulling that they don't seem to be working in the same direction as tranquility, as relaxation. So it, it, it both kind of provides like energy to kind of fuel the process and also offers some contrast. Oh, hold I've got a, talking about the postman, I've got the postman at the door. Give me 30 seconds. I got to okay. answer it. Thanks. Wait, wait, please, Mr. Postman. Um, yeah, also bare, the barefoot walking uh, was great because the, the landscape was really lovely. It's like you go the little road through the village and then kind of gravel path to the fields and in the path through the fields there would be there was a really really great contrast there'd be lots of just like really lovely grassy uh sections but there was also plenty of like nettles stinging nettles and thistles that you had to look out for and uh on certain paths and bits there were more of them and certain paths there were less of them there was also a fair bit of like horse uh, manure and sheep pellets dotted around the place. And then in bits, you'd go in the woods and then there'd be like, depending on what was the dominant tree. So some woods, there were lots of beech trees and there's lots of beech nuts on the floor and other trees, there were lots of oaks. Uh, so there were lots of acorns on the floor. Okay. But like, and then you'd go through another forest bit where there was, it was it was lots of streams and the earth was like really muddy and kind of moist mm -hmm. um and it was such a it's just such a like rich sensory engagement with all of those different and to get from one field to the other you had to cross the little country lane that's a little tarmac path mm -hmm. 
you know, just that, that contrast was very, it was lovely. It was really nice. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> from what I would understand, if you had been wearing shoes for that whole week, you would have had almost a completely different experience and out in your walking. Hmm. You'd have been very visually oriented, but now that you're going barefoot, now you're very sensually oriented. Yes. You con you're constantly coming back to, um, yeah, a very physical, sensory engagement with the landscape and with the path. And you're also, it was also, yeah, you're, you're, you're being very mindful of, of kind of where you're stepping you're being you're like exercising some sort of like wisdom and kind of overview i don't want to step there <laughs> that's why it's called wisdom with every step mindfulness with every step well if you're barefooted you ought to be mindful otherwise you're going to yeah. step on something <laughs> but see when we're wearing shoes we don't care yeah but now that we got the barefoot and so in a way we could say that we wear mental clothing also as protection, just like we wear physical clothing for protection. And that one of the, the possibilities with the Dhamma is opening up to our sensories, our sensory awareness, and our protection so that we can basically go raw, go back into nature, become part of nature, as opposed to being the outsider from the city that is parked into nature for a short time for the, yeah. in that week you became part of nature there. there were there were times walking through the woods where you'd suddenly become aware of like the contrast between the the kind of emptiness of the woods and the and the fact that your mind had gone into a kind of you know quite repetitive boring thinking loop and you'd suddenly just go, oh, and you just, and you would like attune to the woods and you would suddenly be in this kind of like open, kind of like a, that sort of don't know mind, that listening mind, that empty mind. And you just, you'd just be like, what, whatever I was doing a moment ago in here was a complete waste of time. <laughs> it was a complete, you know, it didn't add any value. It detracted from my moment, my experience of this moment, and you just let it go, attuned to the, the sound and the feel of the woods, and you're just open, empty, bright. Yes, yes. Congratulations. You've been in the woods. <laughs> You've been the woods. You've been there. That's excellent. Congratulations. And bare feet very helps with that. Because um, many Westerners can go trumpsing through the woods with all of their hiking gear and all of their protective stuff and everything like that. And actually, they're never in the woods. They're there to see the woods, but they would have gotten about as much out of it if they'd have been watching a documentary or something. Yeah. But with you out there exposed from the feet up, <clears throat> now we have become part of that nature. Mm. And so that's a, a very good um, way of, of practicing. That's why here in Thailand, that's why they do it barefoot, is because it really does help us go back to nature. Mm. Becoming uh, 
a part of it again. Mm. Rather than, if you look at it that way, wearing shoes and wearing clothing is intended to separate us from that part of nature we don't like. Mm. And to some degree, we have to take care of that in the sense of housing. Going naked like a babe in the woods, 24 hours a day, you weren't, you're not up to that. You're not ready for survival. But, but uh, uh, let us say a Beethoven Sixth Symphony uh, retreat, you're up for. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about is pastorals, the Sixth yeah. Symphony. That's that's the kind of um, uh, hike into the woods that we that we need. Yeah. Um, So getting ready for it, though, would be by going out barefoot. Yeah. Being in it for short, short periods of time as we can experience. But the longer you would stay in the woods, the better you would like it. There yeah. may come a time when you don't want to leave. <laughs> I strongly sus- suspect that, that there will be a time in my life where I do s- spend a lot. I, I move out of London and live in the countryside in, I've, yeah, I, I feel like that's going to happen. Um, yeah Yeah. and it it, that whole um shift with the kind of seven factors of awakening and it's interesting like how much the walking allows you to kind of see and integrate things from the sitting from the practice like i i didn't really realize I think like I'm. It will be like a part of my practice now. That, like once a week, I go for a, a barefoot walk, and I've got some nice woodland near where I live, like a fifteen-minute bike ride away. And I think that will be like a kind of essential part of my weekly. Right. Actually, that whole thing that you're talking about, if you keep in mind that little phrase, mindfulness with every step, mm. going barefoot actually puts us in the position of almost naturally bringing up mindfulness with every step. Watch every footstep that you make, because otherwise you might step on something you wish you hadn't. Mm-hmm. And so every foot, in, in fact, many times we put our foot down on something and we wish you hadn't, even though we knew that that was our best choice. <laughs> Yeah, I got both. He was going rock, uh, going on out on gravel intentionally. Well, I I thought of that because the path out of the village into the fields is a gravel path. So Mm -hmm. I thought of because you told me about that, and uh, so I thought of that because that gravel path was quite. Well, some people pay a lot of money to have foot massages, you know, and. And there it is, right out there. All you have to do is just go walking on it. You'll get a foot massage. <laughs> After it rained one, it rained one night, and going out walking the next day was lovely because it was like this fresh, wet earth and grass. But there were some enormous slugs out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's like, and I was like, I don't, I don't. Yes. 
You don't Everything want to step on you. I don't want to step on you. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, with the slugs out, there's more things for mindfulness of walking. That's excellent, yes. And so with every step, and we take more steps than we do breaths. So practicing mindfulness with every breath is a good practice, but real mindfulness, I mean, if you want it nonstop, lickety-split, start to walk. Walking meditation, mindfulness with every step. That means about once every second, once every two seconds. you got to watch where you're going. You can't get lost in thought. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> Unless you sit down. Mm. Then you can. So that, that idea of walking out, I'm really pleased that you got so much out of it. Mm, I did. Thank you for the suggestion. That was really good. Um, so, yeah, now, I suppose just like that, trying to kind of integrate those kind of lessons learned and not just kind of run away from them again, like not just run back out of that intention yeah, because the, the mindfulness, it really did just become apparent. I think I wrote it down in my notebook, like mindfulness is the path, duh. Because it's just like such a basic, it's almost like a, a cliche of kind of Buddhism. Like, oh, well, Buddhism is a mindful path. And do you know what I mean? It, it's almost <laughs> like become sort of meaningless. Well, it hasn't become meaningless, but it's used so often that it, it, it doesn't really register. But it's used so often because of its power. Yeah. But when the power is overly referenced, then it doesn't hold quite so much power. It becomes too ordinary. But yeah. you're right. That's the whole show. So your question then would be, how can we maintain the kind of stuff that you've gotten from your uh, week-long retreat? Mm -hmm. The answer to that would be going for a walk barefoot every day. And it really doesn't matter where you go. I mean, you can't go walking in the clouds, so I'm talking about it doesn't matter where you go on the ground. Mm. Well, I started last term. We have a field next to my school, and I, I take the kids out on it every day, and we run. It's like a mile to run around it twice, and I did well, that. What would they think of you if you went out there with them barefoot? I did do it barefoot all, all last term. And the all last <laughs> like, uh, For six weeks, the last half term. Um, and the children all thought I was mad until they start until one day when it was wet and they said, oh, we don't want to run because it will get my shoes and my socks wet and then I'll have wet feet all day. They said, can we, can, I, can we do it barefoot like you? And then they love it and they all start. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried that one of, the, one of the assistant head teachers who's in charge of like PE, she's really like everyone must wear appropriate footwear at all times. So I don't think she'll like it if the children copy me. So I was kind of reluctant when they, anyway, but I will continue to do that. You got away with it. Congratulations. You got away with it. Yeah, so the kids will enjoy that. That's one thing that I would say. But you don't have to wait until school goes back. You can, when we finish talking, you can go out for a walk. Yeah. Go out for a walk at night. Yeah. That will bring up your awareness pretty good, too. But unfortunately, you can't do it the way that we did it at Watsu and Mok. Because you've got street lights. 
Yeah, I think next. I think next year I'm gonna do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do like a, a wilderness. Uh, there's a friend of mine. He lives in part of England, Northumberland. It's like a really uh, remote, beautiful, quite wild place. It's like open more like just miles and miles of open moorland little uh -huh. little copses like little woods like really small little woods and streams and rivers running through it um it's very very it's like the least densely populated part of the uk of uh, england mm -hmm. um and i'm gonna i'll stay with him i'll stay he's got like a little little tiny little farmhouse like on the edge of the land it's a I'm trying to make a reference of Baskervilles, but I'll let it slide. <laughs> I don't think there'll be any uh, any wild demonic hounds. But was that is that set in Northumberland? That might be set on the moors in Northumberland. Anyway, um, yeah, I want to stay. I'll stay there with him. I think, and I'll, I'll try and make that like an annual thing. Um, but yes, but that's. Okay. And that's the classic thing with retreat is that you you separate it out to retreat. You think, oh, I want to go again. That's what I want to do. Whereas actually, it's about yeah. But the easier way to do it is to bring it back with you. Exactly. That's, that's what, what I'm trying to get around to. Yeah, that's a harder task, right? Rather than kind of like craving the to go back, is to actually bring it bring it with you. Well, that means that we're. The environment or the buildings are really the only thing that changed except your mind. Yeah. If you don't change your mind, then you can actually live in the building that you're in now as if you were still out there in the woods. Yeah. And you can treat the people around you like they were just regular ordinary trees. <laughs> Leaving their nuts on the ground or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sky as well it's something about like it's something about your perception like every time i looked at the sky it was like captivating just like this like like amazingly like rich like almost like too much almost like blinding like play of like cloud and blue and light and shadow there is so much happening every moment and we're just not paying attention to all that's going on. Yeah. So that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Going back to this, like mindfulness is the past. Like, it's just like, just be here now as just be here now and open up to the vastness of what's going on around us is just enormous. The, like you said, the shadows, the light play, the, the leaves, the wind on the trees, uh, I don't know how to say it without being grandiose, but there's got to be at least a million different colors of green right here in front of me. Mm. So many different times of shades of, of green that even in one leaf, it changes mm. all over that leaf. It's a, a darker green in the center and lighter green and tinge of yellow. It's just all over the place. It's just enormously complex. Mm. But when we're thinking about ourselves or our own problems, we miss out on the complexity of and the enormity of what's happening around us. Mm -hmm. And so getting into our senses, 
which was basically what you were doing with the practice that you had there. There were no books, no television, nothing, no input from the inside. The only thing that there was was the pastoral setting, the woodland and the fields and whatnot like that. And in that doing and having that, you were in your senses mm-hmm. a lot, most of the time. But in fact, when you're out, but um, when you're barefoot out in the field on the on that playing field with the kids, that's a known territory, and you've got all kinds of other things happening. Mm-hmm. I was thinking more of no, you want to go individual uh, walks to yeah. places you've never been before, mm-hmm. barefoot. Mm-hmm. And and not looking crazy like the police are going to get attracted to you, like you're. <laughs> yeah, uh, the streets in London barefoot is quite a um, uh, attention. It's something bound to. Only if you bring attention to yourself. Nobody's going to watch your feet unless you're doing it. Mm. No, you need to be out there barefoot, but it's a natural thing that you're doing. Mm. Just watching where you're going. And completely unconcerned with whoever's watching you. Mm. Become self-conscious about it, of course you're going to attract attention. Mm. It's called hiding in plain sight. I think you've heard of that. (laughs) (laughs) So you can hide your barefootedness right in there in plain sight. Nobody's looking at your feet because you're not. You're watching where you're going. And they're not. <laughs> they're watching three or four feet in front they're, of you. Right, they're right, right. <laughs> so that's another way that you can bring your practice back. Mm-hmm. Is to uh, live for a while as much as you can as if you were still in the woods. Mm-hmm. And at the best, all you have to do is be aware of fast animals coming by in the form of traffic. I mean, I'm not saying stand in the middle of the road and pretend like you're not in London. (laughs) That's not what I'm getting at. But I'm getting at that you can live in London as if you were living in the forest simply because you're paying attention to where you're going and what you're doing and you're not worried about anybody else or anything else. Mm. Also on a on a kind of sitting practice level. So that's the kind of like more kind of active, integrative kind of level, right? Kind of like bringing Mm -hmm. on a sitting practice level, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna continue to explore that kind of second half and just let that of the seven factors of awakening through Anapanasana. Yeah, go, go out with your seven factors of awakening. Let them be your shelter and guide. You do not have to be worried about what people think about you barefoot Mm. um it's interesting seven facts of like i almost it's not a very i didn't i'd never heard of them until we started speaking a year ago or maybe a little bit but maybe I'd, i'd seen it very occasionally in my reading you know it hadn't it seems like such a it's like the it's like the key process of the path, right? Like it is. It gets it gets star billing in the Anapanasati Sutta, and it is prominent in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's in both of them as part of the Dhamma Nupasana. Mm. 
Yeah. In other words, let's keep the seven factors of enlightenment in mind as opposed to all the sufferings of the world. Yeah. Like you don't... Yeah. It's, it seems to me like it should be a more, like, well-known thing, like that non-Buddha, you know, it should be as famous as the... It as is the, actually third-grade Buddhism. Third-grade? Third-grade. It's, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, graduate yeah. school. It is third-grade Buddhism. The problem is, is that most of them never get into the third grade. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, Damarato, I've got to go, unfortunately, at 10 you, o'clock. You is... are going to go. You don't got to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Um, thanks a lot for chat, for your time. And also, yeah, as I said, thanks so much for all your help and guidance in exploring. Yeah. I, I've enjoyed your journey vicariously. Right. <laughs> yes. Excellent. All I right. really enjoyed our time together. Call soon. I want to see how your, um, uh, your, your forest practice is working out for you in the city. Okay. <laughs> All right. Take care, Damarati. Speak okay. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.